All right, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. And so where we had left off last week, we're still in this time of Christ preaching on the close of the age. If you recall, the disciples, a few of them take Jesus aside privately and try to get the inside scoop of, you know, what's going to be the signs of the end, end of the age. And so he goes into this long discourse about it, about the abomination of desolation, about being on guard, staying awake. If you remember, we talked about a couple of the uh, martyrs who had been persecuted, talked about their endurance of the faith, enduring all the hardships, and how you know, we're still waiting for the end to come. But we're going to be picking up still, kind of in the, jumping back into the middle of this, into Mark 13, 24. We'll begin with, before we do that, we'll begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And so before actually we get started into verse 24, we need to back up to 1310 and answer the question about what Jesus means whenever he says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Did some digging around and try to see what exactly he is talking about here. And so some churches, some Christians use this as a way to say, you know, well, we have to proclaim the gospel throughout all the places. Every nation has to have the gospel proclaimed before the end can come. So it's kind of an eschatological mission focus of, you know, we can do our part to usher in the end times, and if we only increase our mission work, you know, bump that up, then, you know, Jesus is going to come back sooner. But what is Jesus actually talking about here? And so we need to look at a few different words in this verse. The first one is the word for first, and that's protos. And so is he speaking here of, in a linear fashion, of this must first take place, then this will happen? Or is it of first importance? You know, chiefly, this must take place. And so it's used both ways all throughout Scripture. And so there's... It's used even both ways just in Mark 10 here. Let's go back to that. Mark 10, let's see, 31. So it's a rich young man. So, let's see, verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So that, you know, fairly self-explanatory there. Then moving on into verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So we have that idea of, you know, first being the chief, you know, the greatest among you must be slave of all. And so we have it used both ways all throughout Scripture. And so here, what is it, was he speaking of? Well, it's still not quite clear because he doesn't expand on what he means here. But we'll go to other passages of Scripture and see well, has the scripture been, or the gospel been proclaimed everywhere? Because that's what he's speaking of. You know, it must first be proclaimed to all the nations. In Matthew's account, it says, must first be proclaimed, and then the end will come, or something to that effect. And so we see that in Colossians 1, 21 to 23, Romans 1 of, you know, you will be without excuse. You know, everyone has the law written on their hearts. We have Paul speaking of, you know, him going to the ends of the earth and proclaiming the gospel all throughout. And so we have this idea that, well, it may not be, have been proclaimed to, you know, the far reaches of Madagascar or whatever it is. The gospel has gone out, you know, after Christ, all the apostles going out through, you know, to all the ends of the earth is how scripture puts it there. So it has gone out. And so then... You know, we're not to see this passage as, well, we got to do our part or if we kick up missions and move a little quicker, then Jesus is going to 
come back sooner. Because where in Scripture does it have that idea? In time, it talks about the end times, as we'll see even later on today. No, you neither know the day nor the hour. And so why is it that we think that, well, if we do our part, we can make them come back a little sooner? And so some people kind of cherry-pick this verse or the, one, the passage in Matthew and say, yeah, you see, we can just move things along and do our part. But that's certainly not what he is speaking of here. At least I would, I would put that forward. Does that kind of answer your question? Oh, got a question up here. I have this note in here by verse 10. Mm-hmm. It says, by persecution. And I think maybe that was Pastor Rody that pointed out the last time we were through this, that it comes in the middle of persecution before, and then you must be persecuted, and that's much the way that the gospel is proclaimed throughout the nations, yeah. by persecution. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what he's getting at here is, you know, so in the midst of all this, yeah. you know, of chief importance, even whenever you're being persecuted, all that, the gospel must first be proclaimed, you know, of utmost importance, whether that come beatings, being burned alive, or any of those that we saw last week. That's first and foremost. Mm-hmm. In the Great Testament of those, I mean, with Polycarp, if you remember him you know, being ushered in and they want to nail him to the post there, and he says, I'm not going to leave. My hour has come, and the Great Testament and the witness to the faith. Yeah. And so everyone, even the guards, you know how they came up to his house and they were going to take him away. And he says, you know, here, I'll make you some dinner, but can you give me a few hours to pray? And they're just astonished of, what's this old man doing? You know? Exactly. It's just a great time for the proclamation of the gospel in the midst of that suffering. And even in our own lives, you know, the great proclamation of the gospel through that as well, through all those hardships, you know, especially at the death of a loved one, at funerals, you know. People who are, aren't Christian, never step foot in a church, coming in here and people have smiles on their faces. What's that about? But we know where they are. So that great testimony that you do have. Any other thoughts on this passage before we move on to our text today? Just a quick comment on Polycarp. He wouldn't even get in the chariot the soldiers offered him to ride in to see the governor. No, I'll walk Mm -hmm. all the way. I think he's 90 years old, if I remember right. Yeah, he's at least in his 80s. 80, yeah. And just this great joy that they had, even with Perpetua, you know, they went back to their prison cell in great joy, they were singing hymns and everything of, you know, our hour has come, being ushered into eternal life here. And so, just a wonderful witness of that. Any other thoughts? Okay, so we're going to be jumping back into Mark thirteen twenty four. So remember, we're going to have to kind of toe the line between, okay, is he talking here about 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, is he talking about the end times? Is he talking about both? Is he talking, you know, what's he talking about? Yes, no, maybe. Not going to have clear answers for you on some of this stuff. But we'll go through and see what Christ is saying here. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the the ends of the earth to the ends of of heaven. And so here to answer Chris's question from last week, trying to get the inside scoop of this week, is this the, the signs that they were asking for? Yes. You know, we have that the sun will be darkened and all these things that will be taking place. But, you know, you're not going to have to be waiting around and trying to guess of, well, is this the end times? Is it not? Is this, you know, solar eclipse? 
or whatever, kind of the ushering in of the end times. Well, if the Son of Man isn't coming in clouds with great glory, it's not going to be the end times yet. And so Veltz has a wonderful comment on this short passage here. We see even a partial fulfillment of that in Christ's crucifixion, in his passion here. If you remember, the skies are darkened, the earth is shaken. You know, even the heavens, the heavens will be shaken, and they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So we have this wonderful painting by Albrecht Dürer. I'm butchering the name, I'm sure. But it's in your book of Concord, and just a wonderful painting. There of Christ on the cross there, and you have the Father behind him, kind of holding him up. It's this great glory of the Son coming into his glory here. That's the complete fulfillment of his earthly ministry, of what he came to accomplish. And so even though he's stricken, smitten, and afflicted, even though he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is still the purpose for whom, why the Father sent his Son into this world. And so if you'll call it back in uh, chapter 10, when two of Jesus' disciples come up to him, and he's like, can I sit on your right and your left when you come into your glory? He says, you don't know what you're asking for. If it's not mine to give, can you be baptized by the baptism that I'll be baptized by, or any of those? And we talked about how that was finding its fulfillment at the cross there. Of, It's not his two disciples that are going to be on his right or on his left, but the two criminals there. And so we have Christ coming into his glory there, and they didn't know what they were asking for of being crucified alongside him. So we have this partial fulfillment taking place on the cross, but then obviously the ultimate fulfillment of Christ's coming for the second coming. We have just this marvelous image of the sun being darkened, just darkness over the face of the earth, but then here comes the light coming in clouds, coming in this great glory. So even though the earth is shaking and all these things, the birth pains are coming to its full conclusion here. Remember that it's not the end, but yet this new birth that is coming. So he's coming forth to bring forth new life new heaven and a new earth here. And he will come and the angels will gather his elect. So he's bringing all his people into this new creation that he will be creating. So there's nothing to fear. We shouldn't be fearing these end times or, you know, standing here wondering, okay, is this the end? Or doing all the calculations that different people claim is all the Mayan calendars or all that stuff of when's the end time going to take place. It doesn't matter to us. If he comes tomorrow, great. Saves us on suffering in this world. But if he comes, you know, 1,000, 2,000 years from now, that's great too. There's new life awaiting us. And so we shouldn't live in this doom and gloom fear of the end times coming, but rather of great joy of what awaits us at the end. Any thoughts, comments, questions on that passage? I'm echoing the same thing that we talked about last week, so nothing too new here. All right, so continuing on into verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So again, we have this image of the fig tree and its leaves coming into bloom. It's apparently a biannual harvest of the fig tree. There's a calendar on page 262 of your study Bible that gives all the barley harvests, wheat harvests, and when all that takes place. But apparently there's a biannual harvest that would take place. So first one in the summer there. And so it's bringing forth this new life. And so we have that image of it's not death, but rather new life is being ushered in. So we know that summer is near. So when these things take place, you know that summer is near, this new birth is at hand. And so here is he talking about 70 AD or the end of 
times. It's a bit of a puzzler here, because he brings up the fig tree, which if you'll recall a few weeks back, don't remember how far back that was, we had him speaking about the fig tree and that clearly being talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, of you know, the Jews having all these leaves but no fruit, and the tree going to be cut down and thrown into the fire and all this stuff. And so here he's bringing back the fig tree, which kind of makes us think that he's talking about 70 AD. But then also, just before, with the coming of the Son of Man, well, that was clearly about, you know, the end times. And then after this passage, in 32 and following, it's no one knows the day or the hour and any of that. So that would be kind of the end times. So then it would be kind of odd to have this fig tree speaking about 70 AD when it's, it's sandwiched in between the two end times. But then what do you do with Jesus saying, this generation will not pass away until all things take place? So there we look at that word for generation. And it's genea. And so we'll look, we're going to do some flipping around in Mark and see how it's used within the Gospel of Mark, what is meant by that generation. And so we'll go from there and then to hopefully shed some light on this passage and how we are to understand it. But if everyone can turn back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse, starting in verse 11. This is the Pharisees demanding a sign. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So here we have the word for generation not being used in a very positive light of why is this generation always, always seeking a sign from me? So we'll continue on into still in chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So here the generation is an adulterous and sinful generation here. Okay, and then moving on into chapter 9, verse 19. So this is Jesus healing the boy with the unclean spirit. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And so those are the, the uses of that word for generation in the Gospel of Mark. And so they're used in pretty negative terms of a sinful, adulterous generation or a generation that always seeks signs or all these things. And so here he is saying, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so here is he speaking of the literal generation of, you know, 20 years or however long that is. Because, you know, the temple's going to be destroyed here in about 40 years or so when he's speaking. Or is it this generation used as a group of people, this class of people, this wicked and adulterous generation of the wicked and adulterous people of this earth? They will not pass away until all things, all these things take place. That heaven and earth, they will all pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so there's two kind of different understandings of what he's speaking of here. Is he speaking literally of the 70 AD? If so, then this generation is a plausible, literal, earthly generation. Or if he's speaking of the end times, well, the generation that was alive in 33 AD isn't still alive today. So what are you doing with that word generation? You're not going to be calling Christ a liar here of well, he was wrong. He thought, you know, the end of the earth would come, but no, he was mistaken, which some people will say, and some people will say that. You know, Paul and all of them thought that the end of the world was going to come, and 
all this stuff, and they were wrong, and all sorts of crazy stuff here. But so those are kind of the two understandings. Sorry, I don't have more of a definite answer, and depending on who you talk to, it's taken both ways, and, you know, one way isn't necessarily incorrect either. So, again, this is all just dealing with very, not abstract things, but hard to comprehend. All the end times and all this talk, and so not having all the answers. We don't even have the answers about when it will take place, you know. Don't necessarily have all the answers of what he is meaning by these things. I don't know. Any thoughts? Any contemplations on? I'm open to any input or any rebuttals of what I've put forth. Is a hand up here? Okay. Could you take that to mean, too, for the unrepentant, sinful person that their generation will pass away on death, at death? That's the end. That's the end for the unrepentant. So this, him speaking here of this generation being the faithful generation. Right. That will not pass away, but the the evil adulteress. That's how... I was kind of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And even again, speaking of you know, the coming of the Son of Man and its partial fulfillment within, within Christ's passion here of you know, this very generation that is alive right now, they'll still be here when all these things take place, of him coming into his glory at the cross, at the ascension, ascending to the right hand of the Father here. So we could take it that way as well, but... Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting thought. Any other thoughts, contemplations? Alrighty. Moving on into verse 32 and following. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So here we have, at the beginning of this passage, we have verse that everyone likes to talk about, everyone likes to debate here, of how is it that the Son does not know either the day or the hour? He's fully God, he's fully man, so how does he, how does he, not, how does he not know that? And so here, for all of its difficulties to understand and parse out, Peeper's three genera that he lays out in his work is very helpful to understand this. And so in the Western church, we have these classifications of these three genuses of the son, the natures of Christ. And so we have the genus idiomaticum, myostaticum, and then apotelsmaticum. And so here the myostaticum, the genus of majesty, where it comes from, is particularly helpful. So here is saying the, let me get this right, I always get them confused. The divine attributes ascribed to the person of Christ be ascribed to his human nature. And so Christ, the person of Christ, fully God, fully man, in, in the body of Christ there, he has full knowledge. He could know that but he chooses to lay that aside in his state of humiliation. And so when he emptied himself, we have that talk in, in Scripture of him emptying himself, taking on human flesh. And so he does not make full use 
of that divinity, that divine knowledge that he does have there. And so Pieper has a wonderful kind of explanation because, of course, he's going to be bringing up this, how we are to understand that the Son doesn't know. So he writes, The fact that he with whom divine omnipotence and divine life were personally united could endure poverty, suffering, and death is no more conceivable than the fact that he could be ignorant of anything while divine omniscience was united with him personally. The difficulty for our intellectual comprehension really does not begin with the twofold knowledge which Holy Writ reports of Christ, but it goes back further. It has its inception at the point where infinite God and finite man became one person. Those who accept this fundamental scripture, scripture fact, despite its incomprehensibility, and also admit the weariness, suffering, and death of Christ's human nature, while it was united with the person of the Son of God, reveal the very opposite of wisdom and scholarliness, if subsequently, when faced with the particular scriptural facts of Christ's miraculous theanthropy, Theanthropic life, they become so agitated that they speak of nonsense as soon as they hear of retracted omnipotence or retracted omniscience. So it's a long-winded way of saying, if we're comfortable saying that Christ, fully God, fully man, can suffer and die, still being fully God, fully man, then how is it that we're uncomfortable with the fact that he's laying aside this divine knowledge of that. And so again, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend that, but we are comfortable enough saying that, yes, in fact, with that, the two natures being united there, we can say that God, in fact, did die on the cross because he's fully God, fully man. And so why are we uncomfortable saying that he lays aside that knowledge of the day or the hour? And he just has a way with saying it's opposite of wisdom and scholarliness, basically calling you a, a little bit of a dummy is, if you don't. Isn't it all that, though? That was all predestined before the foundations of the world, right? Because it, we're, we're talking with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as doing this long before anything's around, right? Before even creation, because they know about what's going to happen. Doing what before foundation? Well, you know, when they go, when we hear in Genesis, you know, the Spirit is over the water. Yeah. So it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, they know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. They, they, they ordain, mm-hmm. or not ordain, I shouldn't use that word, but they know that what's going to happen and the redemption of it. So it's not a surprise to them. So we need to just do what it says and not listen to what Satan says, but just say, hey, that's what he says, that's what he means. Mm-hmm. God is God, we're not. And we move on. <laughs> How is it that he doesn't know? I don't know. But he said, doesn't know, so we'll take him at his word. And we move on from there. And so, Again, just being comfortable with not having all the answers. Because that's when you really get into a bunch of issues of, well, how is it that... The bread and the wine is his body and blood, and so then you get a bunch of churches trying to rationalize all that. And we're just comfortable with the fact of, I don't know, but he said it, so amen. Go from there. So don't try to explain all this stuff to the nth degree. You know, it is a worthy pursuit to have those classifications of the three genera and all that stuff, to have a right frame of mind for thinking. But at the end of the day, it's comes to being comfortable with the fact that we don't know everything. And it's good that we don't know everything. (laughs) We should be grateful for that fact. (laughs) Any thoughts on that first verse before we move on to the rest of the passage? All right, so here we have the language again of being on guard, staying awake. You know, all throughout Scripture, you know, the end, it'll come as a thief in the night. All of that is all throughout Jesus' teaching here. And so we have that language of keeping awake, keeping a lookout. We even have that, you know, the Nicene Creed of, you know, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. 
And so we're sitting here with great anticipation, looking for that, looking for that end time to come here. And then Jesus kind of moves on into, it seems like a par- what's a parable here. So it's like a young man, or it's like a man going on a journey. So he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge. And so they kind of have these different watches throughout the night. So we have, again, that same idea of staying awake. You had the parable of the ten virgins, that same type of idea of staying awake. You know, these servants, you know, obviously need to sleep at some point, but then always someone is awake. So what are we to do with that? There's not a whole lot of consensus on what he's exactly getting at here, but it's the same, the same idea of staying awake, being on guard. You know, know neither the time nor the hour, so be prepared. Don't be anxious because it's great joy. It's new life that is coming forth. But be on guard, be awake, be ready for that time to come whenever it may be, lest you be found asleep or with the parable of the ten virgins, you know, without oil in your lamps or any of those such things here. So that kind of concludes his teaching here on the end times. Again, we don't have all the answers on all this stuff, but hopefully shed some light on it. There's any other thoughts? We'll keep moving on. A couple. Just a quick, simple thought. Uh, you know, we don't know when we're going to die either. So uh, I think it's best and we, that we understand we don't know the future. And, uh, this passage speaks to me. Amplify both of those. That, uh, and it's not good for us to know the future. I wouldn't do anything different probably if I knew the future. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm comfortable with that, I guess yeah. it would make my. Um, the awake part is, it's not literal for awake, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's for what? Informed, be alert, uh, repentive, you know, stay in the faith type of thing? Is that what yeah. the awake is? Okay. Yeah, being, being ready at any moment, you know. What's a guard of a castle good for if he's asleep at the wheel whenever, you know, an army comes? You know, you've got to be ready at any moment. And so your faith and all that, you know, being ready at any time. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a contradiction that the sun does not know the hour. Um, it, I mean, if the idea that the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit are three different persons, then why should there be a contradiction? Why, why couldn't it be possible, since they are in different persons, that they would have different mm-hmm. abilities or... I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that... Otherwise, they would all be the same person. So, mm-hmm. doesn't so even that's necessi- where we have that division of three and one. They're united. You know, the Father and I are one, or I and the Father are one. We have that language. But yet, like you said, they are three distinct persons there. And so, not him not knowing. Yeah, so it just, yeah, it just occurred to me that it doesn't even necessarily have to be a, a contradiction there. Just saying, dogmatically speaking, it would be essential within the divinity of the second person that he know all things. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you cease to be fully God. So we'd want to confess that. The mystery is rather in the interface between the divine and human. Mm-hmm. So a parallel way, and maybe more familiar to you, is remember when Luke says that Jesus as a child grew in wisdom and stature? So growing in wisdom is a characteristic of the human nature, not the divine. Uh, not knowing something is a characteristic of a human nature, divine nature. So that's where the growth or the not knowing would reside. Now, how that interfaces with 
by nature is where you get into, say, kenosis, which is the emptying out. By nature, sort of like emptying himself of the characteristics of the whole person of Christ. This is the whole argument of Christology, these, these complications. The complication, the difficulty, the apparent contradiction is between an all-knowing divine nature and a human nature that does not know. How does that work? We don't know. Not okay. So I mean, not strictly speaking, a contradiction, but there's a mystery. That's the language we would use. There's a mystery between how can uh, you have two natures, an all-knowing nature, and an and a nature, a human nature that doesn't know all things. How can you have those two natures reside in one person uh, without? They're commingling them, which is kind of a saying that the divine didn't know, or overly separating them, uh, where the divine knows but the human doesn't, and then they're like they don't share a true union. They're like two boards glued together, right? So those are the two Christological heresies to avoid here: Nestorianism and what's the other one where they mix it together? Epicureanism, or no? Uh, no, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Sorry to wait. Yeah, you take Yanism. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah, the mixing together. So, yeah, complicated stuff. But in the end, really simple. If you just take the scriptures at face value, that he grew in wisdom and stature, okay. He didn't know, okay. As the divine one, didn't he know all things? Yes, but somehow in that interface. Yeah, there may be some analogies. It'll probably only further complicate things. But there, yeah, there may be some analogies. Like me with a cup of coffee, remember certain things, and me without doesn't. Which roadie is the real roadie? Yes, two roadies in one person. <laughs> Any other thoughts on that? Before we move on, just we'll see more of this same idea of being comfortable with this, not being anxious, and we'll see that this coming Sunday of Jesus speaking about don't be anxious. And so just encouraging to look forward to that, and we'll see how he is teaching us again of don't be worried about tomorrow, don't be worried about yesterday. You know, sufficient for the day is its own its own trouble. And so just Satan would have nothing more or want nothing more than to have you be worried about the coming of the end of the age and when's that going to take place and all these fears and trembling that some churches would have you, have you succumb to. But the Lord says, you know, just stay awake. I'm here with you through the word, through the sacraments. I'm here. It's fine whenever that takes place. And so just don't fear. Live today knowing that he is faithful. And whenever that day comes, it's a great joy. So don't have anything to fear here. With that, move on to chapter 14. And so here again, all this other stuff seemingly is taking place on Tuesday of Holy Week. And so now into chapter 14. Verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So then this would actually be Wednesday of Holy Week, which I thought I'd read somewhere where there's no mention of anything really taking place on Wednesday of Holy Week. I guess kind of depending on how you understand the, when Passover starts with the, starting the evening, you know, their days were started and ended differently than ours. Let's see, this would be the Wednesday of Holy Week. So it's two days before the feast or the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So again, all along they've been seeking to arrest him from almost the very get-go. 
They've been seeing his teaching, but they've also been seeing the flock of people following him, listening to his every word that he says here. And so they knew the great crowd of people and the great uproar that would happen. They did, you know, arrest him and do all this publicly. So they were trying to arrest him by stealth and just kill him, but out of fear of the uproar of the people. And so we've seen this all, you know, they've been slowly trying to put their plan into action. They've been asking him all kinds of questions all throughout, trying to trap him, try to get the people's opinion of him to turn, the court of public opinion to turn against him. And they've been wildly unsuccessful at that. So we'll see here in a few verses that they that Judas comes to them and they'll start really laying, laying out their plan here. Then getting into verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So we have just this wonderful scene of he's reclining at this table and this woman comes up and she has this ointment of pure nard, which read in the commentaries is Indian perfume made from the stems of plant of plants growing in the southern Himalayas. I guess it's a costly thing. But so she takes that and she anoints him. And then all the, there are those around him who, you know, they see this and they get all annoyed at him. And we're told in another account that it was the disciples that were actually the ones being annoyed at this, which Judas would be included in that, presumably. And so they're getting annoyed of why was the Amen wasted you know, they could have sold it for 300 denarii, which doing the math, two denarii is one shekel, and Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 shekels. So it was a fit, this, he betrayed Jesus for a fifth of this ointment. So he's getting annoyed that, you know, well, they wasted all this money. They could have been giving it to the poor. Well, I'll just take some of this other money, and I'll betray him for even a smaller amount. Of, we could have given this lump sum of money, but I'll take just, just a fifth of that and I'll, I'll betray the master that I followed throughout his ministry here. I'll hand him over. So just the absurd greed of that. So they get all mad of, you know, he could have sold it and given it to the poor. So they were scolding her. And Jesus, you know, comes to her defense of that she has done a beautiful thing saying, you know, there's always going to be poor people. You could have always given to the poor. Why is it of concern right now? You could have used this. You're not always going to have me here. In fact, she's doing this beautiful thing of preparing my body for burial. It's just this marvelous image of she is prepping him already. And so some commentators will point to the fact that she has heard of his passion predictions and all of this, and that she knows what's going to take place. And so this is her, in fact, preparing him for burial, knowing what's going to take place. So she begins to prepare his body even before he goes to the cross. So she has this wonderful act of service already. Of, if that's the case, then she would be one of the first ones here to really understand and come to terms, at least what we're told of, Jesus' own passion predictions. He's been predicting this all along, telling them what's about to take place. And here it is, a woman comes up to him and anoints him. And she is the one then that would understand what's about to take place and 
use this costly ointment to be able to prepare his body. Because again, there's no embalming or any of that. You've got to do spices and all that just to cover the stench. And so that is, there's that idea to it, whether or not that is the case, could or could not be. But if it is, that's a, it's a wonderful thing. And Jesus says, And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's a great reflection, just thinking about all these passages, all these events in Scripture that we read of. Just who, if they would have known that their actions, this healing that Jesus did to them, would be recorded for all time, for all these people to read for millennia. Just hard to comprehend that, but just a wonderful thing. We get a little peek of this, of, you know, that all these events weren't just taking place in this vacuum. This was all to carry on throughout time until the end. All these events are recorded that when we read it even 2,000 years later here, we read of her actions, we read of the healings that he has done, all these things, and it's all in service of the gospel here. So just a wonderful insight from the mouth of Jesus himself, of him looking forward to that, of the gospel being proclaimed in the future and her being remembered for this. Any thoughts on this passage? Moving along, at a pretty good clip here. All right. So then in verse 10 and following, so here Judas is going to be betraying Jesus. So then verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here we have the plan of all the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, finally starting to get some real traction here. They've been trying and trying unsuccessfully all along, but now they've got one of his own disciples ready to betray him just for, again, 30 shekels. Just a small sum of money here. So he saw an opportunity, so he's laying in wait, ready for the time to hand him over, and of course we know when that will take place. But then moving on, we get the Mark's account of the Passover with the disciples. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. So he's sending them out. He's knowing what's going to be taking place. So he's wanting to prepare this Passover to eat with his disciples. Which interesting note in the commentators is, hadn't really thought about it before, but the Passover and all this stuff, that was the family unit that you would gather together with the family the father and the son, you know, they have the whole Passover liturgy that they would be doing. So the fact that he's gathering with his disciples here is already a little bit of a change of what you would expect to be taking place here. So he goes, so he says, go into the city and, you know, there'll be a man carrying a jar of water. So again, we have a little bit of that knowledge, that divine knowledge of what's going to be taking place. So we just had previously of him saying he doesn't know the day or the hour, but here he knows that there's going to be a man with a jar of water and meet him, and you'll, you'll go prepared from there. So we have just this idea of him knowing what's going to be taking place. He's, this is all foreknown. He is, this is all culminating into his passion. So this is all in preparation for that. So then, you know, be in the large upper room, there prepare for us. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as they told, as he had told them. 
and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, so again, Judas included. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Just what an indictment there of knowing what's going to be taking place. Knowing who it is, he knows that it is Judas, of course. So he's saying it would have been better for that man if he hadn't have been born. So all the disciples are obviously freaking out here of, well, is it I? Am, am I going to be the one? Well, if you're kind of asking that question, it's probably not going to be you. The one guy kind of sitting there wide-eyed of, oh, that's a guy to look for. And that would have been Judas there, sitting there. So it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they, they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So it's a little hard to read because I always go back to the liturgy, that, that phraseology of it, so you have to take time to make sure you're not adding take, eat. So here we have Mark's account here of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so the, one, the institution that we have in the LSB, the verba there, that's a conglomeration of all the accounts because all of them kind of have slightly different variations. So that's pulling them all together into this one unified institution of the Lord's Supper here. So we all know this text very well, so there's nothing, nothing much to expand upon unless there's any thoughts or questions on this or Jesus speaking about Judas betraying him. It's amazing that you can see how God arranges everything in perfect timing because he says, go in and you're going to see a man. They don't even know his name or anything. Mm-hmm. And to follow him and go into the master's house. And again, you have other people that aren't even associated. God has ordained ahead of time to prepare things. Mm-hmm. So when people, I'm amazed that people can't read this and pick up on any of these signs yeah it's not that he's just kind of a victim of government persecution of him and so it's this was all ordained this was all planned out from the very foundation of the world yes. he knew what was going to take place and yes not just a victim of circumstances here yeah because other people other people were involved mm-hmm. to help him celebrate this the master of the house Somehow the Holy Spirit told him mm-hmm. that somebody would be coming. So yeah. we don't know our part in this life. Mm-hmm. And even at the hand of the wicked rulers of, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees think that they finally got the upper hand and we finally succeeded at what we've been going for all along. But in fact, it was the Lord's plan. And they were playing their part in that, even though they thought they were... They were finally getting the victory. In fact, he was having the ultimate victory there, even in spite of that. Sort of, sort of um, related to that, um, it's the Judas, um, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. And yet, without Judas betraying him, there would be no salvation, there would be no atonement, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a mystery. It's like he had to do it, or it wouldn't have been finished, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, here it's saying it would have been better for that man, not that it would have been better in general here. And so for the sake of Judas, it would have been better for his own sake if he hadn't been born. 
but for the sake of the plan. You know, he was born, he did betray him, and that was that, was that there. I didn't mean to say that, mm-hmm. I, oh, look, he, he's, he screwed up there. I oh, just yeah. meant, um, just thinking about the, the fact that this was part of God's plan that Judas would play this role, and yeah. it seems like a tragedy to, to be that Judas and, and be selected for that role, and yet, there it is, so I, I don't know. Just thinking about that. Yeah. I think you're misunderstanding, because you're, you're assuming he didn't have a choice, and he did. God knew it already, that he was going to make that choice. So, it isn't like, oh... Yeah. You know, it's like somebody liking chocolate ice cream and you see the chocolate ice cream coming down in the truck and you steal it. No. He made a choice. That's what he did. And again, that gets back to, you know, is God the cause of evil or is he using evil for good? You know, that whose pastor has talked about that several times now of that same idea of, you know, was, was he selected? You know, but it was his own greed that we saw. You know, just a few verses before of you know him going to the chief priest and he wanted that thirty shekels worth. Of the, You know, I think this kind of gets to the point of, well, could he have said no? Yes. Could, you know, the scribes not have given Judas the money? Well, yeah. But the very fact that all these things did take place, we see that it did, was for the purpose of God's plan. And so, you know, we could have kind of looked back of, well, what if this, what if that? But the very fact that it did happen this way, you know, we have those events recorded for, for our sake here. Any other thoughts, comments? Do a really quick run through verse 26 to 31. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. But we know what's going to happen. And Peter, of course, being bold as Peter is, you know, even if they all fall away, I won't. But he's kind of the first one to deny him and leave, leave Jesus there. And one final note of... When they'd all, you know, they went out and they'd sung a hymn of just the joy of hymn singing, even back then, even in the time of Christ, the the joy of music there, even in the midst of the events that were about to take place, singing hymns to the Lord here. But any other final thoughts? We go, I'm a little bit confused. Going back to chapter 14, verse 1, uh, now it was two days before the Passover, and we said that was Wednesday and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Mm-hmm. And it says, seeking how to kill Jesus, but let's not do it during the feast. Mm-hmm. Well, the feast lasted beyond, uh, I think Unleavened Bread is seven days. I'm, I'm not sure. It's more than one day, though. Yeah, I'd have to look. So, uh, what happened here? How, w- the next day, it was the uh, in the upper room, uh, mm-hmm. and then, then Good Friday. I don't know, I just want to reconcile that. Did it get out of hand? Uh, uh, how did the chief Pharisees uh, change their mind about the timing of his mm-hmm. 
Anyway. I mean, juice was kind of, you know, we have him seeking an opportunity. And so if that was the impetus for getting things moving along of, well, here's an opportunity. He's, you know, kind of secluded. We can do it privately. Or, but they were concerned about the uproar from the people. Mm-hmm. They had the gift horse, you know, looking yeah. the gift horse in the mouth there. Yeah. They, they wanted to do it in stealth, and so here Jesus is off in the garden. You know, oh. we, can, we can lead him away, get things taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, we'll revisit this more next week. There's any other thoughts? I mean, it may well be, as, as I think I've heard some proposals, that there was some sort of change of mind or opportunity and, that arose, and, that, and the circumstances were right, they're willing to risk it, et cetera, et cetera. That may well be the case. Um, just one other little tidbit worth having in your mind, though, when it comes to Holy Week. Sometimes the Passover and sometimes um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread can be used of like one day in particular, or so like a narrow sense or a couple of days in particular. Or broad sense, like the bigger picture. So the same way, like we might say Christmas, and have it, you know, well, the kids are going to be off of school for Christmas. Do you mean just the one day? No, you mean the week before and the week after, right? So there's some, yeah, there can be some um, fudging there. That's the technical term for the usage of uh, these these kinds of phrases: the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just one more tidbit to add in, if possible. Any other thoughts? The Lord be with you.